Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this episode contains names and discussions of deceased persons. Gen Off Grid provides stations with reliable energy systems comprising of solar, lithium batteries and backup diesel, reducing current diesel usage by up to 90%. All systems are built and tested at our workshops in Broome, Caratha and Darwin, with proven performance in North Australian conditions, backed by a 10-year warranty, local support and remote monitoring. Visit their website to see systems in action on cattle stations, as well as commercial, ecotourism and industrial projects. Learn more at genoffgrid.com. That's G-E-N-O-F-F-G-R-I-D.com. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Hayden Sale manages one of the largest aggregations of cattle and land in Northern Australia. But chances are you've never heard of him. Unlike others in his position, Hayden wasn't born into the northern cattle industry. Nor did he do a gap year up north straight out of boarding school for one of the big corporates. He also wasn't a general manager or CEO of some other company in some other industry in a previous life. Hayden's journey is unlike any other I have come across. It is uniquely his. In this episode... I managed to pin this incredibly busy man down to learn how he got to where he is, what he considers important and non-negotiable in life, and what keeps him going. To start, I asked Hayden to describe what he was like as a child. I was a very active child, always loved sport, outdoors, loved being on the, the family farm as much as I could. Didn't really like being trapped in the classroom, but ground my way through it. Uh, had a younger brother, but he was a fair bit younger. He was four years younger. There's only two of us in the family. So did spend quite a lot of time on my own. Uh, he wasn't as interested in the farm stuff. He was more a coasty type kid. So spent lots and lots of my youth, uh, on my own, but with older people, with my grandfather or my father or, or my, uh, or my uncles. So, um, yeah, pretty normal Australian upbringing, I, I would imagine, you know, plenty of outdoors time and dragged into school and, and, uh, back outdoors. Yeah. And did you grow up on the family farm or was that somewhere else? No, between the two. My mum and dad were um, from Melbourne, uh, so I was born in Melbourne. My, my grandfather uh, and grandmother were farmers in central Victoria, north of Ballarat, and, and were still pretty active as I was growing up and I loved that. So I spent most of my time there, went to school out there for a few years in my primary years. So between the two, really, Melbourne was mainly just for me to attend school and then any time, including most weekends or after sport, I'd be at the family farm. Yeah, at, um, at Smeaton, which is a little town north of Ballarat in central Victoria. 
And so when you say you were an active child, were you a well-behaved child, Hayden? Uh, that's debatable. You'd probably have to <laughs> ask someone that has a better vision on that. But no, no, I used to get up to a bit of mischief. You know, spirited might have been the right word, they say. That's sort of a nice way of saying, saying someone's naughty, I think. But no, look, I, was, I wasn't madly um, rebellious, but uh, I used to enjoy a bit of, a bit of fun, yeah. I, I loved learning things on the farm, so and I was always striving to to do the next thing on my own, whether that be drive a tractor on my own, or or catch a sheep on my own, or go mustering on my own. Or and I remember the first time I I ever um, built a load of square hay bales on the back of a trailer that we used to cut hay every spring for the winter period for the sheep and and cattle. And um and I was never allowed to stack the load because I was always considered too little. And, and, and the first time I got a crack at it, I, I stacked it. And I was very proud of my stacked load and came up the side of the hill and the back half of the load fell off the truck. <laughs> and my uncle and my grandfather just laughed at me. And I was just devastated. I remember mean, just trying not to cry because uh, that would have been a bit ridiculous as well. And I, and, uh, and uh, my uncle, God love him, just said, well, come on, we better go around and put that back on and uh, have another crack. So that was one that just stuck in my mind that, you know, there's, there's successes and failures and you've got to suck it up and get it on with whatever it is. Yeah. How old do you reckon you were at the time? Oh, I might have been 10 or 12, something like that. Just just old enough to sort of lift around the bales, be, be able to lift around the bales on my own, yeah. So. That's brilliant. And you mm. said uh, your brother was more of the coasty type. So I think you guys are fairly chalk and cheese. Today you're living in the Kimberley Running a cattle business, and he's a surf person, isn't he? Yeah, so he he um imports and has shops for surf clothing in uh, Bondi and uh, and Melbourne. Yeah, so he's always been more in the rag trade fashion sort of sphere, heavy on the on surfing and stuff. So yeah, we we had a, we had quite a cool childhood, really. Looking back at it, you know, my brother and my dad was was uh, loved to surf. Uh, so we'd either be at the at the coast or we'd be. At the farm, and any spare time we had, so he sort of went that way, yeah. And wh- how come you didn't end up in the water? Uh, I always liked the farm more. Yeah, I was always more suited to the farm. You're a dry land person. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the, like the land more than the ocean. So, if you grew up on a farm in Central Victoria, how did you end up in Northern Australia, from you know, a completely different world away? Um, so, I suppose towards the end of my school years, year twelve, we went through quite a, um, quite a difficult, tragic period. My, my father. Passed away. He had um, a brain tumor, uh, which was in year twelve, and then not long after, the following, that was in December, and in the following uh, February, my grandfather passed away. So, two of the big influences in my life, and also my mother's husband and uh, and father. So it was quite a traumatic change to our whole life, really. And I was just leaving school. I was. I was hell bent on, on being a jackaroo and making my way in the ag world, so I was I was on my way to the Riverina to work on a merino stud, and and um and this all happened, yeah. So uh, this was quite a dramatic shift in our whole world, I suppose. Uh, my brother was still at school. Mum, not only mentally but financially, went through a humongous change. Like she had to then try and uh, get my brother through the rest of the way of school. Like mum and dad worked really hard to um. To get us through school, like we went to a good private school in, in Melbourne, but they weren't particularly wealthy people. They just they just had in their mind that's what they wanted to do for us, and they both worked jobs. Both worked were both small business people, effectively, and and ground out the the work to get us through, which which I look back at now and, and really appreciate. But that was um that was massive. So in in uh, out of all that, uh, the farm had to be sold to to allow Mum to continue her life and and get get my, my brother through school and 
people sort of forget that the eighties and the nineties weren't they weren't an easy period. You know, interest rates were very high. You know, interest rates got up to close to twenty percent. Um, agriculture was pretty dull. You know, the sheep job had collapsed. Cattle were were very low, you know, wheat. I'm not so much sure about the cropping background, but I know that the livestock industry was pretty, was pretty dull through that period. So, so it was just a rationalization, really. Like we had to sell a, sell a farm, um, set mum up. I got my brother through, got her established in a, you know, in a reasonable house in Melbourne. And so I was off on my own. Yeah. From thinking that I might, uh, go back there at some point, you know, in reality, I look back now and it probably wasn't big enough. It was, you know, the, the farming had really skipped a generation. Like my, my mother was an only child and, and, um, my grandfather, she wasn't interested. So my grandfather really didn't have anyone to hand the farm onto. So it never got to a point where he just sort of saw out his working life and didn't expand or do anything like those, those things. So it was just an average size farm in Victoria. And looking back at it now, I think it would have been a pretty hard grind anyway. Um, and probably would have held me down there unnecessarily. Um, whereas I, I got to open my eyes and, you know, rethink what I was doing and, and look at how I could make my own way effectively, Steph. Yeah. So, so from there it was off to Jackarang and, and, um, did, did a uni degree agricultural economics just because we were always sort of told we had to do something in those days. And I'm glad I did, but, but yeah, that's how it, it, uh, it veered away to looking at what other opportunities we could find. Yeah. As you just said, that would have been an immensely traumatic period in your life. I actually, I didn't know that about your dad. Was that, did that all happen relatively fast or? No, it happened very quickly. Yeah. So when I was in year 12, he got, um, diagnosed with a brain tumor in, I reckon it was in August, uh, and he passed away in December. So it was three months from start to finish. And then, um, and then my grandfather had a heart attack and he was quite fit. He was only 70. I look back at that. It's funny how things change. Like in those days, 72 seemed oldish. Now it's not old at all. Mainly because I'm getting in that way myself, <laughs> but you know, in reality, people expect to live into their eighties these days. But you know that. Was, so he's seventy two. He died quite suddenly of a heart attack. He was actually still working on the family farm. So, yeah, it was a massive traumatic upheaval in our lives. Yeah, must have been a difficult path to navigate in terms of you know you're just kind of at that age, starting out in your own life and wanting to go out and have adventures and explore and see what opportunities are out there. But at the same time, effectively, you know, almost half of your family has just passed away and you're wanting to stay near the what family you have left. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, it's, um, it was very difficult because I was so looking forward to getting out of school and starting this journey. You know, just, you know, I've always wanted to be an ag and always loved it and, and then we had this great, um, upset in our lives and my brother was still at school. So uh, it was very difficult. Um, but you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, as they say. And, um, you know, it took a number of years to get past that. And, but there were some awesome times in there too, you know, and you look back at it now and, and whatever life chucks at you, you just got to work it out and get on with it, don't you? You know, and out of that, that's probably opened up a lot of things, us being in the north that may never, may never have happened, you know, so. So coming out of uni, what was the goal for you? What did you think you were going to do? Uh, look, it's, um, I always had a goal of, of, of owning a farm again, uh, and or station. I wasn't so much focused on the station life thing because, you know, our, our life was in southern Australia, I hardly knew northern Australia. So, um, I just thought, how are we going to do this? Um, and then I met a really amazing man called John Dunnicliffe um, through a girl. I was going out with his daughter in, in the last years of uni. And then that changed my attitude as to what I was going to do. Like I thought I might do something along the lines with my 
university degree or whether I would look to try and get a station manager's, farm manager's job or something like that. Um, but meeting him was, was pretty, uh, amazing because he, he, he was a, a son of a Sydney doctor, um, that was, I imagine, a bit like me. Like I, th- I think he had connections out at Canamble that he used to love going out there and he managed to forge his way into, into an amazing career in, in, in farm and station ownership by just approaching it a bit differently by thinking about on a, on a really entrepreneurial business base as to bring it, you know, as, as I remember going to a, um, what do they call it? Where you go and see your, your teacher at school, you know, where you, they tell oh, you what you're going to be. Careers um, counselling. Careers counselling. Yeah. 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 And he said, well, unless you've got X size farm, don't, don't worry about being a farmer. Uh, you know, whereas, that was not John's. What he brought to the table was something to do. What size excise farm was? Is that these are businesses? How you manage these businesses and how you take opportunities as they as they come, um, and that includes not getting attached to properties. If you if it's if you buy it at the right price, you do it up, and someone offers you what you think is good money that you can't make a reasonable return on, sell it to them. So, and, and and he just approached it purely on that sense, and he and you had to be that way to really make your way forward. Uh, and so he was, he was an amazing man and, and went on to be quite a big influence in my life, yeah. So is that what led you to purchase your first farm? Yeah, yeah, we – yes, it did. I, I actually worked for him on King Island for um, – when I left uni for a couple of years and got some great tutelage and and, uh, and experience under him. Uh, and then I started a contracting business because uh, that was – you know, that's, that was a relatively easy way for people wanting to get going to get started in their own business. You know, you could, you could borrow the money to, to buy the machinery quite easily. Um, my mother helped me out with a guarantee on my first loan from a tractor. I never actually borrowed anything from my mother, but I, she did help me, uh, with a guarantee, which was enormous, you know, so then I could, I could, uh, I could take on the debt myself and I bought some machinery and, and kicked off, uh, making hay and doing pasture renovation and stuff. And that was my first business experience. And, and that was under encouragement from John. So, uh, and then the end aim was to buy a place, uh, which I, we built up the business and sold it and went into a partnership in Southern New South Wales. So that was our first, first sort of, um, experience of farm ownership. Yeah. Now you said you worked for John on King Island, but I suppose if that name sounds familiar to our listeners, John is most well known for a property he has in the Northern Territory called Beetaloo, which, uh, in the last couple of years has undergone significant infrastructure development. Uh, did he have Beetaloo at that time? Is that kind of what drew you up to the Territory? Um, no, but he had a pl- property called Cherubin, which is right next door to us now. Interesting. Oh. Yeah. So he, he had a property, uh, called Upper Wantagong at Holbrook and then a pl- property, uh, called Sheelite, King Island and Cherubin, uh, which in, is the, in, in the Kimberley. Fitzroy Crossing. Yeah. Next door to where we are now. We're at Beefwood Park next door. So it's kind of weird that we've done the full circle, but he, uh, when I was working for him, we used to travel to the Kimberley and, um, and inspect the station really and see what was going on. And that was my first experience of coming up here. And I loved it and he loved it. Uh, uh, and then eventually obviously moved his old operations north. Yeah. And so when did you decide to make the move north? Uh, so our first foray into farm ownership was quite disastrous. Uh, we, we, uh, it was me and a partner, uh, who I'd known for quite a while, met at uni actually, but he was a bit older guy. He's, he's about probably seven or eight years older than me. So he, he actually owned a farm in that area and we decided we were going to, uh, buy this property, which was a small sort of 5,000 acre irrigation type place across the border in, uh, northern, uh, southern New South Wales from Swan Hill. And we came up with this grand plan that we were going to, um, develop pivot irrigation that we could 
tow between sites and therefore we could irrigate more country and, and, uh, and effectively just do a development on this property. Um, and then we, when we were doing the, you know, all, nearly all borrowed money, which you sort of have to, you know, when you're getting started, you've got to borrow a lot of money. You've got to take the risk because it's just, where do you find it otherwise, you know? So we, we had some low level of equity. We borrowed an enormous amount of money and we went in there on a, uh, with a pretty good plan that came majorly unstuck as it was the start of the, uh, the millennium drought. So the year that we arrived there, we'd done sort of a risk analysis for the bank that said the water allocation, the lowest they'd had in the last 40 years was 36%. And in those days, uh, you used to get quite regularly 100% and you would even get more. You know, on a high flow, you might get nearly double that again. So we had all these grand plans. The first year of the drought just didn't rain at all, even in the catchment. So we got 8% in the first year. Uh, and we had to buy water on the open market, which was enormously expensive and we didn't have the money for. Uh, and then we got another year of zero the next year. So we, we just got ourselves in awful trouble really quickly. Um, which, which, you know, I've taken a hard lesson out of that. Uh, yeah, it's good to extend yourself, but it's not good to crazily extend yourself. I suppose I took out of that. So we slunk out of there with just the shirt on our back, lost a lot of the money that we ever made. Uh, luckily my partner had a bit more behind him. So he took on a bit of it and away he went, but we, uh, I'd met Jane by this stage. So we're sort of thinking, Oh God, what do we do now? You know, what a setback. And I was in my, in my late twenties and I thought, God, I just put in 10 pretty hard years work and, Remember that I'd worked my way all the way through uni as well to pay for my own way through uni. So I was just thinking, God, this is, hasn't worked out that well. And, uh, out of uni, Nathan Webb Smith, who was my best mate there, who lived in Beefwood Park. He's at parents. He grew up on Beefwood Park, which is now property we run, strangely again. Um, he'd always said to me, look, if you ever a loose end, go north. There's so much opportunity. You know, go to Catherine, go somewhere that you, you turn your hand to anything. So that stuck in my mind. So we went to look at Catherine, loved it. And then, uh, Bought a little block there, uh, just out of town with the idea of starting over again with the contracting business and, and, uh, and that's what we did. Yeah. Catherine is and would have been back then and still very much is today a whole different world to Victoria. And yeah. Farming. Oh, it's hugely different, but it's sort of what it wasn't. It wasn't like there was a cattle industry that I just didn't know. Uh, I didn't have an experience in, but I've obviously worked cattle in my life. Um, but there, there was farming, you know, that's what sort of drew me to it. You know, there was people there growing crops. There was hay production. There was stuff that I knew. Uh, more than on your cattle. And, um, so I thought, well, I'll get up there and I'll, we'll just have to see how we go. Effectively, <laughs> you know, what else can you do? <laughs> I just thought, well, here we go. Start again. I'm not, not tired yet. I'm feeling a little bit tired, but I'm, I think I can come good. And, um, yeah, we, we moved there into a, into a really rundown, uh, old horticultural farm. It was 450 acres. Uh, used to grow, uh, well, the strong memory was it used to grow a lot of dope and the bloke that ran it, uh, had been killed off by the mafia. So it had gone, was sitting there. Really? Yeah. Yeah. By the Australian, by the uh, Melbourne mafia. So it's not, I can't think of his name, but it was one of those classic sort of mafia sounding names. But so he was sitting there doing nothing and this guy had actually died in a flood. Um, so it, it was really run down, really, really run down. So it was right up our alley. You know, it was cheap enough. We could buy it and borrow all the money again, do all those silly things and, and, and the way we went. But it wasn't, a, it wasn't enough that we couldn't sort of cover from outside work. So it was just right. Let's just grind it out. So we found, uh, found jobs in the local export depot run, working, running the farming side of that. Um, when we got a bit established there, we started back into the contracting business, hay and silage and, and, uh, and, 
and uh, cropping work for the peanut company that got going. So, yeah. And what made you want to take the step out from the, you know, growing hay and having a few other jobs around town to purchasing your own cattle? Uh, look, I, I, back to John again. Um, we, John Duncliffe, by that stage, he'd, he'd moved to Boodaloo. Um, he saw an enormous opportunity there between the three, actually three properties, Boodaloo, Mungabroom and OT Downs, which are, add up to two and a half million acres in the old, old language. It's an enormous slab of the Barclay Tablelands running up into the red country that was only running uh, about 20,000 cattle uh, and massive, like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hectares of no water on country that wasn't getting used. So, you know, he could see the opportunity there. Uh, so he'd moved there ostensibly to kick off this great uh, development project. Uh, so I I'd, I'd, I'd always loved talking to him and watching what he was doing and he'd he just kept saying to me, look, if you can get a leg in, if you can get a start in on some land up here, it's still pretty cheap and there's still plenty of development opportunity to make it more valuable and make it more productive. So we were always looking, looking, looking. The first logical step was to get our hands on some cattle, you know, So we and there were quite good little uh, adjustment opportunities at Sturt Plateau and around there where you could you could buy a couple of hundred head or you could buy 10 at a time if you want and just all sort of what we did and just add it up and add it up and... and um, and uh, we went into actually went into another partnership. So a lot of my life's been about partnerships. It's very, it's, it's very difficult to do much all on your own. You need to find find a bit of equity to go in with you. So Jane's Jane's mum and stepdad um, came in on the cattle partnership, and uh, so we started buying up cattle and uh, and grew a herd down there yeah, up to four hundred four hundred and fifty odd cows, I think, in the end. Yeah. Wow! Tell me about your first cattle that you bought. Were they like pets? Uh, no, they were. <laughs> they were. <laughs> I would have named them all. I would have been like, "Here's my first cows," and they all had collars and names. And- no, they were. They were. They were just really motley cull cows. So at the depot, as these as as uh, people would send in cows to sell, um, for the boats in those days. You know, they used to take a lot of cows in those days. So part of the program was the cows would come in and get preg tested, and they had to be empty to go on the boat. So people. If they didn't have a vet on station or they just didn't have time or whatever, would send the whole mob in and, and a percentage of them would preg test, uh, in calf. And then rather than send them home, we'd buy them off them. So that was our little process that every time the vet came out, anything was in calf, we'll grab them. And you couldn't be too picky. You couldn't say, I want this one, but I don't want that one, you know, send them home again. So we ended up with this quite motley herd of cattle from, Quite nice Brahmins to the ugliest, hairiest looking thing you've ever seen. So yeah, it wasn't, uh, you know, you got to take it as it comes when you're starting out, but yeah, they, we loved them though. How long did you guys run your cattle and adjustment for before you made the move into station ownership? Oh, I reckon it three years. Uh, uh, yeah, it would have probably only been three years. And we were, we were always hunting for a station ownership opportunity, but again, again, just enormous slabs of money that we just didn't have. Um, so we had in our mind, we'll do a partnership again at some, of some stage, um, but it would be good. At, you know, our equity put in was the cattle, effectively, uh, and then whatever we got from we sold up our businesses in Catherine. So, uh, but even still, they were very, a very small percentage compared to what you needed to go in. Because yeah, one thing I learnt from that Southern New South Wales thing was, is you just need a buffer of equity up here behind you if things go pear shaped, you know, and they do. You know, there's, they always go pear shaped at some point in this industry. There's droughts, floods, market meltdowns. Disease outbreaks, you know, that's just what they are. It's what this industry is. And if you're not ready for it, you will eventually come unstuck. So, so yeah, we, we found some partners and then, uh, and made the move 2007, I think it was. Yeah. Into you all. Yeah. And so this would have been your late twenties, early thirties for both of you. Yeah. We probably would, I would have been 
Mid thirties by then, I reckon. Yeah, early thirties. Yeah, yep. Giving so, away your age, Hayden. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to take a few off you here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I always find it interesting uh, for people that have come into the industry or that we find today that are managing properties, owning properties. Most, most often than not, I'd say nine times out of ten, they've come into the industry at you know sixteen, seventeen, eighteen as a jackaroo, and then kind of just spent their life there, working their way up. And what is so fascinating about you and Jane is that you came into this industry in your thirties. You hadn't been in the pastoral industry before. Had you actually gone out previously? I know you said you were going to do some jackarooing in um, New South Wales or Victoria. Had you ever been? And you and you'd come up when you're working for. Uh, Dunny Cliff to his property in the Kimberley, but had you ever done seasons as a ringer or a station hand or? Uh, not not in the north, no. I did two years jackaroo when I left school and I did my, uh, I did four years at uni, but I, I worked, basically just worked my way through uni. So every holidays I was working either on a, a, a sheep and cattle place or a cropping place, depending on the time of the year. Uh, and obviously effectively grew up on one. So it's a funny thing about the north. People think that you have to know the north to run the north. I, I don't actually agree with that. I think you just have to bring cattle and livestock skills with you and sometimes a fresh pair of eyes to the ways that things run can bring a can bring um bring some positives, you know, to, to how what in, in some cases can become a quite a traditional industry, you know. Um not that there's anything wrong with that and everyone does things their own way, but I think Sometimes it is good to bring a fresh pair of eyes to it, you know, and say, well, why do you do it that way? Why don't we do it this way? Or, you know, and I want to stress I'm not saying that that's right or wrong compared to the way people do things, but, but I do actually think sometimes there's positives in coming to it like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've just I've always found from all the people I know in this industry, you are, I suppose, a part of a smaller group that doesn't have that traditional entry or that traditional pathway into station manage, uh, management and ownership. So you guys, uh, found a partnership opportunity and tell me about how it all came to be at Yugawala. When we were in Catherine, we just had our eye out for a place. Um, one of, um, back to the old thing, we needed some partnership. We needed, effectively needed some equity in there with us so we could survive a downturn when it came, having learnt that the hard way. Um, so with that, uh, Jane's dad, uh, introduced us to, um, one of his friends, uh, who was overseas. Uh, working as a CEO at the time, but was wanting to come home. Had done very well. And then he introduced us to another, uh, Melbourne, uh, base guy called Harold Mitchell, who was, um, who we didn't know from a bar save actually, but he just sold a big portion of his, of his advertising business there and was looking to, to, um, get into agriculture. I don't know why, but he, he was, um, so, you know, looking back in hindsight, it was pretty naive. We just did right. This is what we want to do. Uh, this is how we think it'll work. Um, but what, one thing we did, I suppose, bring to it, uh, was again, a, a more entrepreneurial, um, results based partnership rather than just saying, you own X, you own X, you own X. Us as the managers owned X because we had to put in something ourselves to show the confidence to the other partners. But the performance of the business then dictated on how well we went, you know, rather than just, uh, rather than collecting a, a salary as such. Um, we didn't want to do that. We wanted to be driven for our rewards on how well we went. So we accepted quite a, a very low salary, just enough to just get us by. But we said the performance of the business will dictate how well we go, uh, ostensibly when we sell it. You know, so the idea was always going to be we're not going to be in partners with these two guys for the rest of our lives. This is not going to be a family business for the rest of time. Uh, let's treat this like an investment. We, we think it's a property that's got a lot of upside with development potential. 
we need X amount of money to do that. Let's tip that in. Let's borrow some on top to keep it real. Um, uh, and in five years' time, we'll see where we're at. And if we, if the, if the investment has performed as well as what we think it's do, then we, that's when we get our payday as well. So that was a really entrepreneurial idea that was brought to me by, by one of the partners, actually the CEO guy called Doug Flynn. And he he said, okay. What about we work on an upside arrangement? So if, if there's like a an eight percent return to the investors year on year, anything over that eight percent year on year, including the increase of the land value and or cash returns, we share that more with you. Yeah. So it was it was a diff, really different way of looking how you might work your way into not so much farm ownership, but the agriculture industry on, on a more investment based entrepreneurial management type returns, you know. So that, that I was really excited about that. I thought, that's great. You know, we'll back ourselves on this. And we did back ourselves because we didn't take much money out of it. We lived pretty frugally for the first five years. Um, but we knew if we got it right, it would be really good for us. So, And you did. You started off living in a shed, didn't you? Yeah, we lived in a little shed out there. Um, Jane was, uh, was pregnant with Tilly and Gus was – Maybe two. So yeah, in the shed, it was stinging hot. And it, yeah, it was pretty, pretty hard yards early up, you know. But that, that's the beauty of youth, you know. You don't know any different. You're just like, no, let's go. Um, and so where, where was Yugawala or where is it? Uh, so it's in the central Kimberley on the southern side. It, it's really isolated. So that's probably why it was, wasn't developed. Um, and it wasn't your traditional, uh, river country, um, more productive Kimberley, I suppose you'd say. You know, it was more like what was called a breeder block. So it was just spinner fence country with some lakes and bits and pieces through it. And, and, um, it was an outstation to another property. So they really only ran a few, a few cattle and came and raided them every now and again and mustered the weaners and took them home. You know, so it was re- literally just an outstation that had, uh, a fence around about half a million acres and it had three dams on it, uh, and nothing else. So when they came in, they used to bring yards in to muster the cattle and, the fence was sort of all fallen over anyway. And so, yeah, it was literally a, a bare block to start from scratch, yeah. It would be hard enough to start, you know, to get, try and get into this business on an established property that just requires general maintenance and upkeep, let alone something that is basically a bare block that needed all the infrastructure and everything yeah. done to it. Yeah, look, and it's funny, Steph, looking back now, um, I actually don't know whether we'd do that the same way again. It is a long haul. It was a long, long haul. You know, the, 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 the pros are that there is a low capital base to get in. The cons are you have to spend an enormous amount of money to get it to where you want it. And then you have what we probably underestimated quite badly was the time to get it to productive. You know, like you've got to buy your cows in. You've got to wait for them to get in calf or you've got to wait for them to have a calf. You've got to grow the calf out. Uh, you generally can't buy really highly productive middle-aged cows off anyone, they keep them. So you're buying all the old cow cows, which they only have a very short life before you've got to sell them again. So it was, you know, and, and the other thing we underestimated was when you put a new water point in on undeveloped country, it really takes the cattle a very long time to settle on that water and make it their home, you know. So there was a big adjustment period for the cattle to settle and get used to the country and make it their home. And in that adjustment period, they don't do very well, you know. So the first few years there, the cattle look bloody awful. And then we're thinking, God, we've made an awful mistake here. And then the other thing we discovered was there's phosphorus, phosphorus deficiency in the country. And once we started putting phosphorus out, the cattle really picked up and, and we were away. But yeah, it was, a, it was a, it was a big grind. You know, it took us all of those five years to get to the point where we we're actually starting to get our head above water. Yeah. Coming back to the fact that you hadn't really done much with cattle in the north before jumping into this. And you're saying, you know, 
learn, you would have had so many learning curves, like the, you know, cattle needed time to settle in on new country, learning about the deficiencies. How did you actually come to learn all those things? Was it other people around you in the community? Like, did you lean on them or kind of yeah. you know, ask questions? Yep. I, I lean on John a lot. You know, like John was probably five years in front of us on this type stuff. I think he started there in 2002. Um, so I just would be on the phone to him once a week or I'd go there and we'd say, okay, we did this wrong, we did this right, what should we do? So I had definitely had a very good lead on that um, and just asking people all around us how they do things, trying to learn. You learn by mistakes, no doubt. You just, you just try not make the same one twice. But it, it's, yeah, it, it was it was very slow and very painful to start with and I'm glad we had uh, the enthusiasm of youth on our side. But it was, yeah, but it, yeah, it was an opportunity that obviously paid off in the end, but it wasn't easy in the early days. How was it raising the kids out there in those early days? I know you, you were very isolated. Yugawala is, you know, is four hours to Fitzroy Crossing. Most of that is dirt. Like it's, it's mm. one of the longest dirt drive. Well, it is the longest dirt driveway I've ever been on. Yep. Um, was it 300 odd Ks or close yeah. to it? Yeah. Uh, from, of, the, from the turn off. Yeah. Yeah. Of yeah. dirt. Uh, and. I remember way back in the day, you guys used to have your groceries delivered, your dry stores, so not your fruit and veg or your perishables, but the non-perishables delivered once a year, just one big shipment, yeah. which is insane. Yeah. It was all about logistics, you know, just being that far out and being so tight for money, you just couldn't say, oh, I'll just pop back into town. You know, if it didn't turn up, it didn't turn up, you just suck it up and not, not have it effectively. No so, tomato sauce for the next <laughs> year. Bad luck. You know, so it was, and having two kids, you know, Jane's just an amazing woman. She just, she handled, handled those kids. I was always at work. She was always with me when she could be. One thing, one thing we did work out pretty early was that we needed a govy. You know, we, 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 that had to be part of the deal with our partners, even though we were, govy was probably making more money than we were, but we, we, you know, at least that allowed Jane to, be more in the business and um and and uh and probably not go mad you know with the kids I I, I absolutely tip my hat to mums itself you know and Jane would say the same thing that teach their own kids is very very difficult thing to do um but that we were always fortunate enough to have a gubby um and then uh, Jane got out and about it with me most of the time so yeah when did the time come that you got the idea that it was time to grow the business and you know. Why, why not just stick with the one property? Why start to purchase more? Uh, well, really, just, it was just an opportunity. Like the neighbors came up and, and in those days, the, the Kimberley properties were really thinly traded. They hardly ever changed hands. You know, they had a period there for probably a generation, you know, from the late eighties to 2010 where hardly any properties changed hands. They were just family owned places and, and the way they went. Now, towards the end of that generation, there were some kids that didn't want to come home or, Whatever reason, um, they started to come up again. So our neighbor's place came up called Booker. Uh, and we thought it was just a good opportunity not to join those places together with the idea that we would then sell both at some point. And it also had an established herd. So going back to that, you know, taking a long time to get our herd going, uh, it actually had a ready income straight away. So, you know, you could go in there and could still look, sell some cattle straight away first year cash flow. So it sort of had twofold really, you know, from a day to day business cash flow perspective it was good for us and two it was just a really good asset to have right next door and it was also our driveway in you know so there's always the worry that if you didn't get on with your neighbor we had to drive through his place to get to our place you know it's like going through someone's backyard in town to get to your own house so it was yeah so it's probably you know there's a few things there how long was it afterwards that you guys purchased you had Bulka and margaret river so you've gone right out purchased two more properties and then Basically, your entire life was flipped on its head with the live export ban. 
Yeah, so Live Export Band came um, a matter of only a couple of weeks after we signed up to buy Bulka. So here we are thinking we were really smart buying the neighbour and how wonderful is all this and, you know, borrowed all the money again and the bulk of it uh, and uh, hadn't even sold an animal off it. We were ready to do our first sale so that what I just said then, this is a good idea, we'll get some cash flow. <laughs> Got dynamited about two weeks later when we couldn't sell any cattle. So I was like, oh, my God. And so where you were in the Kimberley, your properties were all geared for live export. There wasn't really cattle that were going into the domestic market. They were all – There was some, uh, same as today, but, Steph, like, you know, just a very small percentage that went to meatworks. Yeah, um, but those are, those are like the cull cows, though, perhaps cows. not yeah. something that we're thinking you're going to find in Woolies with one of those little fancy stickers on the package no, that – No, no. And look, yeah. they, uh, that – the live export stoppage dramatically affected that too, because a lot of, a lot of, um, in those days, the cows were going on the boats as well if they were pre-tested and empty. Now, as soon as the boats stopped taking those, the, the, the domestic market got flooded with those animals. So I remember selling cows for, um, for 80 cents, 80 no cents, 80 way. cents a kilo. So by the time we got them to town, the time we paid the freight to town on them, I think we got about $300 or $280 or something for a cow. So it was just, yeah, it wasn't even nice accommodation in Broome. <laughs> okay. so, yeah, so then we couldn't sell a lot of our other cattle. So yeah, we, we were, we, that was a, that was, yeah, it was a pretty stressful period, no doubt. How did you manage to push through? I mean, you're still here today. So you've obviously pushed through that period, but yeah. I can't even begin to imagine what Look, the, that would have been like. The, the band, I, the, the, we, it opened back up reasonably quickly, like within a few months. Um, because I think that, you know, the people in charge finally realised what a disastrous um, animal welfare issue was coming at them. You know, like we couldn't sell cattle. We had calves coming on. We were running out of feed. And eventually the penny dropped and they said, oh, my God, what have we done? And they never tell you that, but they did and they opened it back up. But what what really smashed us was um, geographically where we are, we're, we're, we're very reliant on that trade. You know, we're too far from other markets. Uh, was that the Indonesians, and I've got to say quite quite reasonably brought in a, uh, a quota system with it because they're pretty upset, you know. Like the, the Australian government had effectively called them barbarians, you know, and cut their cut their their food supply off, which is ridiculous looking back, you know. And it, yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there was there was issues there that needed fixing. There's no arguing that. But I think the original reaction of, of the 12 where they identified some issues was a good thing to do and everyone was very supportive of that. Shut them down, work out what's going on with the industry, but the areas that are good, let them keep going, and then they just overreacted and stopped the trade. So, out of that, they were pretty upset with us, with good reason. And um, I said, "Well, why are we relying on this unreliable market to us that treats us badly?" So uh, they they cut us back to a quota of about one quarter of the animals that we were sending there. So two hundred and twenty thousand down from eight hundred odd, which just dramatically affected our market. Obviously, these only had X amount of cattle they could buy. They picked the best ones. Uh, left you with all the all the second grade ones, or even you know even the slightly less quality ones. No one has, or very few people have a whole herd of beautiful, magnificent cattle. So they go and pick the top eyes out of them, leave you with the rest, which were then unsaleable. Um, so we just were accumulating cattle everywhere, and we and we borrowed more money. We 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 never went back to our partners for more money. That was always our thing, you know. It's, we'll we'll handle it. So we just screwed down the costs as hard as we can. We went back to the bank. Bank was an uh, agricultural-based bank, so they were pretty good to a point. Um, and said, okay, how do we ride this out? And then the, the issue we had was where do we put all these cattle? You know, we just, we were accumulating cattle all over the place. And that's when our sort of relationship with Duty and uh, subleases kicked off to be able to put cattle on their country. So, um, that was the start of that. Like a next door neighbor, uh, Duty Lawford, really, um, 
impressive Indigenous guy that was running his own show there, but for various reasons always was undercapitalised. They, uh, I went and spoke to him and said, mate, we've got to put cattle somewhere. Uh, what about, and I can't pay you, we've got no money, but what about what we can do is help you muster your cattle uh, with the machinery and bits and pieces we've got and uh, anything you can sell, you know, you can effectively sell for nothing. We'll do the work for you. And in return, uh, we'd like a bit of space on your place to run cattle. So that was what kicked off effectively the start of all the relationships we've got now with the other Indigenous properties. That business relationship that you started with Doody Lawford, that kind of spurred on, you know, a whole change in your business model going forward and I suppose in a way coming back to this theme of opportunities, the opportunities that you saw to work with more local Indigenous pastoralists and Indigenous leases uh, has become a big part of the business. Yeah, I suppose out of that, Steph, um, that, that gr- once that we sort of survived the live export next couple of years, which were very, very difficult, and a lot of a lot of people went broke in that period. You know, I think people sort of gloss over it. it you either went broke or you went miles backwards to the point that it's probably only taken us to the last year or two to dig ourselves out, you know, and the cattle prices are great now. Uh, but they, they sort of needed to be to get us out of that hole, you know. It was very, very, very difficult. I reckon we had 12 to 18 months left and we were we were probably gone too. You know, that's how dramatic it got. We just weren't covering operating costs. We were living on debt. We, were, we had it screwed down to, you know, Jane and I used to do most of it with maybe a couple of backpackers every now and again. So we we're working ourselves to death as well. You know, we really pushed ourselves to the brink. And, um, but once, once that came good, once we'd survived it and we were <laughs> saddled with this huge amount of debt and, right, how do we make ourselves our way out of this hole? What it did is it, it, it's, it, it sort of kiboshed our ability to do massive amounts more development because you need the funds to do it. So we thought, how do we keep growing and get ourselves back on our feet a bit? Um, so we, speaking to Doody and he was very encouraging of all this, there was a lot of other Aboriginal leases around that were underutilised. So we could, we could sort of keep our cattle and keep growing our herd, but not have to spend the money on development up front. We were doing bits and pieces of that when we could afford it on our own places, but we could also effectively stockpile our cattle somewhere and grow the herd, which was always our, our goal. And it was about growing the herd and growing the asset more than making a cash return in the first instance. And that's what our partners were happy with as well. So that was our goal. And, um, that facilitated that, uh, but also did some great things for the communities as well. It helped us and helped them. You know, they've got these properties that, um, in the, in the main are quite unworkable because they can't borrow money against them. And I know there's probably, there are some good reasons for that. But on the other side, if you're going to run a business, it's very hard to not borrow money against the value of your asset. So they're in this no man's land of having a cattle station that they can't, uh, run like a, a typical business. Um, whether they have the skills or not to do that is is variable, but there there definitely are people that want to do it and could do it, but a bit hamstrung. So, uh, what we brought to it was a cash flow. So we could say, okay, we'll take half the property um, if we've got to spend a little bit of money to get it. So at least it can carry some cattle on fixing water points. We'll take that uh, on a half half basis. So we'll 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 set a we'll set what we think is a reasonable return per head per animal per year. You know, like an adjustment rate effectively. We'll say in the first two years, we'll put half of that money into getting it back to work. We'll still pay you half in cash. And then after that period of time or whatever, might be three or four or five years, depending on how much had to be done, uh, then it goes to a full cash payment. So then they had a, they had a cash income for their business that they can then grow their own business. You know? So that, that's worked in the main really well. Um, diff- differing relationships with different communities, but that's, uh, that's how that kicked off. And Doody really helped us with facilitate that with, 
the other communities, you know. You had to build some trust, you know, that you had to go in there and most of them started off as adjustment agreements of one or two years, prove that you did the right thing, prove you'd pay your bills, prove you'd offer employment if, you, if it was there, get people's trust and then slowly but surely move into a longer-term sublease arrangement, which we have on on um, four and a half properties now. So, yeah, and we're working on another one. So that, that's been a great business model for us. Um, good for us, grow her, good for them. Creating income and some employment, so I think it's been a, I think it's been a real success story. Mostly kicked off by by the late Duty Lawford, who who really very sadly killed himself. Um, uh, probably five years ago now. Yeah, so he yeah he um obviously struggled from depression and a few other issues, and and like he's a real um uh, a real scourge in the Aboriginal community. You know, is this this sort of uh, committing suicide thing and. I'm sure I know it is everywhere, but it seems to be more more uh, pre- prevalent in the indigenous community. So yeah, that was a real loss. I know for you and for Jane, while initially this was sort of a, a, a business arrangement, you know, and an opportunity, working with Duddy and the other people you've worked with, you know, they are not just you know business acquaintances; they are part of your community. They are your friends. You know you you know your kids have grown up with their kids. You've become good friends, and so losing duty hit you particularly hard. Yeah. How was it in those days? You know the people that you did these business arrangements with. You know the local indigenous people. It wasn't just you know it may, it may have started off as as a business opportunity, but these people have become your your dear friends and. To this day, I know you were very, very affected when Duddy passed away. Um, you know, he'd spent a lot of time with your children. You guys, you know, you wouldn't just be catching up over business matters. It was a, it was a friendship as well. And that's, you've got that with many of the people you work with. Yeah. Duddy, Duddy was, I, I always thought he was very, uh, inspirational. Ryan Salina, his, his wife was amazing too, you know. So it was, uh, yeah, we became, we became friends, not, not even, even I think the business side of that even fell away, we would still be friends. You know, our kids still do you remember telling showing the kids how to had a what time of year and what how to eat conquerberry berries, you know, and bush tucker stuff and a bush that, that you could wipe on yourself to keep the keep the mozzies off you and you know, just all the stuff that's really special. Um, yeah, so that was you know, it was very sad. So it was it's it's an interesting one because it's two very different worlds, you know. It's um that that are that are brought together by Necessity, isolation, uh, and and eventually become friendships. Yeah, so it's kind of yeah, it's quite a special thing. So yeah, I, I still am quite affected by by Duty um, passing away. It seems to be, I suppose, really looking back on it now, just from the conversations that we've had and what I know about you beyond this podcast episode is that there have been a number of very instrumental people in your life that have passed away from your father, your grandfather, Doody, John Dunnycliffe passed away not that long ago. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe I'm bad luck, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> I should not get my speak to uh, For the purposes of uh, any universal forces listening, I'm friends with Jane, not Hayden. <laughs> I'm, I'm just here for Jane. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, there's been uh, – yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been very lucky. I've I've, I've met some amazing people, um, and uh, I think it's an interesting thing being on a station. I think if you live on a station, you're not particularly a people person. You know, you're more of a your own time person. 
you know, you're not particularly madly social. Uh, I certainly am. Jane's probably more than me. But, um, but I like to think the, the friends that I do make and get to know are very, are very good friends, you know, and they, uh, yeah, it, yeah, I've met some incredible people on the way for sure. But yeah, I do. I, I, you know, John was like a, like a second father to me. Uh, and I was, I, I was still upset about him not being around just to have a yarn to because I took just so much stuff from him, just even from, um, not just business, not even, not even really just business, like a lot of, um, you know, just life stuff, you know, how to treat people, how to, how to be respectful. Um, you know, he, he didn't suffer fools. He was no sort of like everyone's friend, but he, if he respected people, he would do anything for them and, 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 and give them an enormous amount of his own, of his own time, uh, without a second thought. And I think that's quite a, that's quite a, um, mark of a person. You know, you're not doing something particularly for yourself. You're doing it to help other people. And it doesn't have to be in the ways that everyone sees and knows. It just can be behind closed doors. It can be little things, but, you know, they're the people that are really good. So throughout these instances of, you know, losing people close to you and, you know, recovering from the live export ban, you and Jane and your partners continue to grow the business to a number of properties uh, and subleases and then the time came, I think it was 2017, to sell, which is, you know, you mentioned earlier on you're looking at this as an investment with review periods and yeah, how, you know, I, I, even though you say, you know, this is an investment and we're, you know, this is, we weren't going to be there forever, uh, we weren't looking to own this forever, how do you, separate yourself from something that you've literally put your blood, sweat and tears into from, you know, it, it is really like raising a child because it started off as an inf- in its infancy stage. You know, there was really nothing out there at Yugawala, a couple of cows, some water points, a little bit of fences, mm-hmm. and you've built it and the other properties into these, you know, well, you know, like you've raised, you've raised the children. Uh, they're ready to go off to college, I suppose. But how do you not become so emotionally attached? And I mean, I, when I knew you guys were selling, I was affected and I didn't even live there and that's not even my place. But mm. so how do you, you know, you're so much closer oh, to that. Of course you're massively affected. You know, the five, five years turned into 10 years, uh, as these things tend to do. Uh, so yeah, we were massively affected. Uh, you know, it was our, our baby, it was our blood, sweat and tears and our partners were very much silent partners. They would come once a year if you're lucky and they, Backed us, which was awesome. You know, we didn't have to go to them and ring up and ask what we could do. We just ran it like our own baby. And so when the time came, it was really, yeah, it was really emotional stuff. Yeah. You know, but the reality of it was Jane and I couldn't do it on our own. We'd love, I'd love to still be there. And it's just us, but economic reality is we're not. Uh, and we couldn't be. Um, and we had to, we had to, we had to deliver on our commitments. You know, the commitments were to make a reasonable return for the people that backed us with their money and, and and back to you know we went through some pretty god awful periods where their equity in that business was probably half what they put in if they're lucky, but they didn't panic they stayed the course and and uh, we we came out the other end okay but yeah that 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 period was really yeah it was pretty emotional having to do that but but you know luckily um luckily we're still there you know we 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 thought well uh, this will probably be it we'll move on and do other things which was a bit exciting in itself but then as it turns out. Uh, the new owners are really, really good people and, and, uh, and, and have added another big business into it and, and it's pretty exciting still. So it's, it's not, it's not, I know it's not the same and it isn't as, as when it's your baby, but it's still really good that we can be there and 
oversee the growth, oversee the excitement in the business, look after the people that we brought into the business to be a part of it. You know, you never my one of my biggest worries when we were selling was how do we what happens if it's someone that's not the right person for the people we've got involved? You know, and that's the biggest one is the indigenous communities. You know, what happens if it's some bloke or some uh, woman that's it's doesn't treat them the right way? You know, or or, or it doesn't understand the nuances of how that has to work and a bit of the give and take and all those things. And that all blows up after all that work to put it together. But more importantly, the commitments we'd made to those people, you know, so, um, so yeah, it, yeah, it was difficult. No doubt still. So from starting off with just Yugawala that had, what is it from memory? 800 cows, a couple of water points. Um, you guys lived in a tin shed mm-hmm. and. And as we, as we said before, you know, you guys come into this, you know, having not worked on stations, um, you know, seeking these opportunities, having a go. And today, uh, while, yeah, you've, you sold out of, um, you go all a pastoral company, the owners, uh, have hired you back. You've got your own out of that, though. You were able to, in partnership, get your own personal station as well. But the, there's been a big shift in the last couple of years that the, the people who own, who bought the company off you actually owned another pastoral company. And so you've gone from this one, you know, and, and not that long ago, you know, 2007, 2008. So we're what, 13, 14 years later. And now you're running, I don't know, let's count them off. Yugawala, Bulga, Margaret River, uh, Mullabulla, Beefwood, Mount Armhurst, Shamrock. Am I forgetting anyone? That's eight. Yeah. And the subleases. And the subleases. So let's say another four and a half. So 12 and a half. Yeah. Stations. Yep. Um, can't imagine the number of cattle you're responsible for, the staff. Like yep. that is a huge amount of growth in such a very short period of time. Yeah, and I think that was part of the attraction for us to start. Well, we had it. We had it in, in any of these sort of commercial r- arrangements where you're selling to a non, uh, to a person that's say not in the industry or hasn't got the experience. They, there's always an expectation that the management will stay on. And you'll see that in most commercial arrangements. Not so much in ag, but like I said, we always approach this as a much more commercial. Uh, investment type business. So, uh, you know, we, Jane and I said, well, part of the deal is we'll stay on for a period of up to two years to, to hand over the management and or see for us what it's like to, you know, um, so we were always going to be there for a couple of years. That was a, that was a worry for us because we thought if we got the wrong people, that might be a pretty trying couple of years. But, um, but part of the excitement was the people that did buy it, uh, had a, had a, a share in that bigger Argyle company that they were then planning to um to take over and then effectively run them all as one. So that was a pretty awesome thing to do because it is a magnificent aggregation of properties now, like one of the best in the country. And, um yeah, so it's been pretty exciting. That was part of the allure to stay on, I suppose. You've gone from being living out on a station in a tin shed, you know, you got your own uh, fixed wing and, and helicopter pilot's licence, very hands-on, on the ground, doing your own bore runs, mustering cattle, fixing things, you know, you started off that way and now you are essentially like the, the general manager of an aggregation of cattle properties. How has that transition been for you? Because as, you know, I, I, I think – for most people in any industry, the goal is always to keep climbing that ladder. But something I've, I've, uh, you know, discussed with people in this industry is that, uh, it can be quite challenging for people, say, when they make that leap from a head stockman to, or even from ringer to head stockman and the head stockman to manager is realizing how much time a manager has to spend in the office. And it's a lot of the strategy making those decisions. And once you become 
manager, you may not be out in the yards with every draft or every muster because your role is so different. And sometimes I think people, especially in an industry like this, where the attraction of it and what people enjoy so much is that hands-on aspect, and then they get taken away from that in a sense, can be really difficult to navigate. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's a really good point you make, Steph. Like it's – um. You do get to a point in this industry where uh, you have to make that choice. You know, you do, if you you want to then become more of a um, a general manager overseeing type role, then you're more on the ground, on hands on the hands on on the ground type stuff. And it's something I actually do miss. I, I, I struggle with that. You know, I really some days I just think I'd just be love to be back doing that, and not dealing with the stuff that I don't really enjoy, which is quite a lot. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah, that's that's a trade-off you make, I suppose. You know, it's a trade-off you make in your career. Like, do you, you know, th- this won't be forever for me and Jane. We've always talked about that. You know, this this is this is uh, something we want to see out for maybe another five-plus-ish years. Um, we, we've got Mandora in place that we probably end up back at at some point, but we're quite excited by the growth and the, the challenge of running the business, but it's um, it is a, it is a very difficult transition. Transition, you know. Um, luckily, I'm not sort of office bound all the time. Um, I've got we've got a great office crew that do that, and and uh, I can be out and about at least half to two thirds of the time. Uh, but I do struggle with those times when I do get office bound. But that's part of the job, and you know, in the end. Not every job is, is is glorious all the time, is it? You know, even if you're on the ground, you. Probably yeah. dreaming of days in an air-conditioned office. Emptying out a bloody cattle dip or something with a bucket. You might think, well, the office doesn't look too bad now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's uh, I could never go to a full office, you know, or even probably even a half office role. I don't think I could do that. Um, but, you know, with the technology these days, you've got, you know, when you're flying, you can be on the phone, uh, in the air, talking, you can be sending messages on, uh, you know, every, every station we go to has a internet setup that allows me to work through, um, my phone for emails, you know, so it's, 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 it's not quite. It's nothing like what it used to be, where it was just office bound and a quick lap around. I do. I do a lot of my work, my my office type work as I go now, which is, which keeps it a bit real for me. Yeah. This is a little bit off topic, but I do want to ask you about your thoughts on foreign investment. So we we did just speak about how you know the company was sold and it was sold to uh, a foreign investor. You've written a story on our website about this, and do you have a, a, a perspective that I'd like to? discuss on foreign investment because I suppose often what we hear and what we see on social media is people are very cautious or, um, hmm. you know, unsure about it. You know, there's there's many varying uh, points of view and perspectives on it, but I'd like to get your take. Uh, look, it's a, it's a good one, Steph. It's a, it's a really important topic. It's something that I can speak from now with experience. So, um, look, it was, it was certainly was in our minds when we were selling the properties, um, you know, um, ideally you just want it sold to an Australian family, for instance, you know, just because we're Australian and we want, we, we like Australians, you know, we just, that's what it is. But at the same time, you can't take an insular view of our country. You just cannot do that. Our country has always been about people bringing in people, capital, ideas, whatever, to grow it to the amazing country it is now, you know, so. It's really easy to get a very narrow view of what should and shouldn't be. Now, if you take a step back and look at agriculture, it's been built on foreign investment. It's, it's, it, it, you know, the, the early Vesti days built the North from the English investments. Canadian pension funds now are huge here. Um, 
there, there was a lot of American investment in the early days from Liveringa. You know, some of that came, came from Israel. So this foreign investment is not new to Australia. It's just become more topical. Do um, you think people look at it different? I might be getting into touchy subjects here, but just speaking, you know, you're just saying, because people, you know, I hear, oh, the Vesti days and, you know, people speak back on times like that, you know, or we talk about, you know, the Americans that were in the Kimberley and it is, I, I feel like often it's quite a fond sentiment. Do you think it's because the nationality of the foreign investors are changing perhaps and they don't, you know, your Americans, your Canadians, your English people perhaps look more like us? I'm not, I'm not by any way trying to say that people are racist, but do you think that's probably a plays into it? It probably that- plays a part, Steph, but I, I don't. I don't know that it, it is really a big part. I think it's just this idea that uh, foreigners, whether they be what colour, nationality, are somehow going to own our farmland and that will affect us. So if you, if you take a look at that, we're, we're a massive exporter of our product as a country. We will never in any way, shape or form have a food security issue. You know, it's just, you hear these crazy things where people say, well, they'll buy the land and then we won't have any food. That won't happen because we, we now export around 75% of what we produce. So the idea that one entity could buy up 75% of something is just ridiculous. Um, so they can never influence any type of production or food security type things in this country, never in your wildest dreams could they get to that level of ownership. Um, what they generally bring, and this has happened in our business, is capital. They bring – they're not here just to um, – drive around, look at their moo cows and enjoy it. They're here to make a business out of it and the, and the business is generally putting capital into it to grow it. So, you know, our business has probably had close to $15 million on its way to $20 million put into it since 2017. That That uh, is capital from another country that comes in that buys products from Australia, that employs Australian contractors, that creates more beef to make our industry more efficient, more boats come here because we're running more cattle. Uh, all of the employees that were in Ugoala when it was sold are there uh, or if they've left it to their own volition and, and they, uh, and we've taken more people on. We've doubled in size again. So there's no, there's no downside I can see. All I can see is, is fresh capital coming into the country. And what you'll find is that generally they leave at some point, you know, they're not here forever. And quite often, and this has happened over and over again through history, capital comes in. Uh, they generally misjudge the business as much better than what it probably is. And they'll, they'll allow an Australian family to exit an asset. They'll put a lot of money into it and then find out generally that it's not probably not as good as what they thought or, or something will happen or their, or their, something will happen in their business back in their own country and they'll change the way they're going and they'll leave. But what they'll leave behind is all the improvements and the money that's been spent there. They can't take that with them. They can never <laughs> Could you imagine up. if they went around and they're you like, know? oh, we're going to pack up these water tanks yeah, and these yeah. fences. We're going to roll the fences up and then we're going to take them with us. You know, <laughs> yeah. it never happens. So. The two things with foreign investment, you cannot have foreign investment influencing choke points, I believe. So choke points for me are railways, ports, things where there can be undue influence put on on production of the, in this country. Right? So the government, I think, has been really, apart from Darwin, which was a silly thing to do, the, the, every other major asset uh, is very well protected in choke points. But agriculture is such a vast, huge industry there will never be enough influence exerted by ownership of land to ever have any negative benefit, negative effect on Australia. And, and it's vastly positive. And that's what we've seen in our business. You know, they've come in, they've employed Australian people, they've put in massive amounts of capital and, and, uh, and that's been good. It's been good for us in the Kimberley. What are some of the upcoming projects you've got 
with your business and with this newfound, you know, capital support. Yeah, so here's another one. So we 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 in the process of developing Shamrock Station to um uh, to an irrigated enterprise, growing centre pivots for fodder, uh, and a, and a feed yard to feed the cattle. Um, very very expensive project. That's been a big again showing a lot of faith by the people that own the company to to back it. Fifteen million dollars, and uh, and that is that is to help us. In the dry years to manage our cattle, when 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 uh, when it doesn't rain, we can we can destock quicker and get weight on cattle and sell them. Uh, it's also to have an avenue into the domestic market for um, for slaughter cattle, so we're not so reliant on the live trade. You know, live trade's great, but in any business, you don't want to be too reliant on any one market. So that'll diversify us a little bit, uh, and I think it will kick off probably what will be a major industry up and down the coast in 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 feed yards and feedlots that will. Help, help give the Kimberley another, another, uh, another string to its bow. What is the dream for you and the end goal? What are you working towards? Uh, look, our dream was always to own our own place. So we'll, we'll get there on, on Mandora. Um, it's, it's sort of morphed a bit. Um, in our mind, when we sold you, what we thought, oh, there we are. That, that's great. But I'm still excited by these big projects and the, and the growth and the, Excitement of doing that. Um, that may wear off at some point. Some days I feel really tired and think today's <laughs> the day, but, uh, at the moment I'm still excited about it. So, and you've got kids to get through school. We've got things like that to get done, but, um, I don't know, Steph, we'll, we'll keep plugging away what we're doing now and, and see where it leads us, I suppose. We don't really have a defined end goal right at the moment. Before I let you go, I want to talk a bit about you as a person, as opposed to all the things that you've done. Because I'm so interested, you know, you in everything you've done and all you've managed to achieve, it takes certain qualities in a person. Uh, I think there's something we all listen to when we that we all are wanting when we listen to a podcast um, or read someone's autobiography is is trying to pick up these, you know, what makes a person tick, what makes them be able to do what they've done. So I'd like to start off with the people that have influenced you and, and what they've brought to your life. Yeah, well, I think the most important person in my life has been Jane. You know, it's well played. We probably well haven't. Played. No, we probably haven't. Probably just thinking as you said that, I probably haven't uh, said that enough. Really, you know, this has not been me. It's been our us the whole way from Jane being out side by side with me at Eagle and. Oh, I, in, I, I was going to call Catherine. this episode Hayden Sales, Jane Sales to I C. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, that's just a Don't worry about who's in charge here. Yeah. So, you know, from Jane living in a house in in Catherine, straight out of Melbourne. That had a tin roof with no nothing underneath it, and an old Rattler aircon that we used to have to put wet blankets on ourselves to be cool enough to stay asleep at night with a child. You know, this amazing woman, amazing woman, and never. I remember when her mum, <laughs> she probably wouldn't like me saying this, but this is this is Jenny. Her mum wouldn't like me saying it, but it's a natural enough reaction. We brought her up to Catherine, and and she saw the house we were living in, which was an old donger with a tin roof and nothing underneath it. And she burst into tears and said, "Oh, I just wanted more for you." It's <laughs> 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 like you can't see the dream, Mum. Oh, Mum's going, "I can." It looks pretty rubbish from where I'm standing, but it's uh. So look, Jane's just been an amazing woman the whole way, incredible, and and just as strong and person to lean on. And times where I've been down and doubted myself, and she's been there, and I hope I've done the same to her. And you know, she had a horrible accident that was nearly ended her life that um that she bounced back from. Amazing, you know, she's an incredibly strong woman and and compassionate and 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 more. I 
I don't know how to say this without sounding like a, a bit of an asshole, but she's she's more empathetic than I am, you know. So she reads people better. And when I'm got my head full of other stuff, she says, "There's something wrong there, Hayden. You know, there's something wrong with this. Someone's not happy there, or someone's not right." And and she's been amazing in that part of our business to make sure people are right and they're and they're sorted and 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 uh, and brought that that softer touch to it, I suppose. That says, "Hang on, this is about people too," you know. Um, which is all, which, which you can't do it without. You know, that's the step you take is when you, you run your own little business, just doing your own thing. When you step to working with other people, it's dramatic change. And it's still probably the most difficult part of the business. And if it was just movies, it'd be really easy, but the people are hard. You know, they're, they're, they're amazingly, uh, they become great friends, but then you also have some really difficult times with people as well. What is the key to being, to having the relationship you do that allows you to speak about Jane? the way you just have after all these years and after all you've been through? Oh, just, a, I suppose, a mutual, well, I hope it's mutual <laughs> respect. <laughs> just, uh, you know, she's an amazing woman, an amazing woman. Like that was a, it was a pretty traumatic accident that happened to her, um, being gored by a bull, um, nearly dying. And then, uh, you know, we just, we were in the live export stoppage. We just, we just had to get on. We had to get on. We had no one else. He was back at work like a matter of weeks later, you know, and, uh, had some long-lasting traumatic effects on Jane, you know, that, that that's still come to the fore every now and again, and and but she's handled it, you know, magnificently. So between between Jane and those other people that we've touched on in the talk, it's um they've been, yeah, the real drivers in my life. Yeah. Throughout all the changes in your life and all the opportunities, you know, you've had a very demanding life and very demanding career. What are the non-negotiables for you that you just won't budge on? Whether that be in your personal or professional life, um, look, I I like to think that we're really straight shooters. You know, I think I think that you know, in in everyone's business life, personal life, there's always an opportunity to take a shortcut, an easy way, uh, sometimes not morally, sometimes not legally, right way. You know, they appeal, they appear all the time, and they're very easy to fall into that. So we've always been really strong on let's take the right path here, even if it's longer or harder or uh, more traumatic, let's take the right path. And I can't say we've done it every time, but that's always been, you know, it, you don't get it right all the time, but that's always been our thing that, you know, we, we do the right thing here, whether that by, by people or or land or cattle or whatever. Um, that's one thing I've always tried to stick out. And, I, and, and that was from my family, I imagine, uh, you know, that sort of gets instilled as you're growing up. John Dunnicliffe was really big on that. You know, he was always... There's sometimes easy ways to get things done, Hayden. That might be a bit grey. They'll be in the areas that you're not sure whether it's right or wrong, but in your gut, you know it isn't. So, don't go there. You know, that's always I think. Well, and 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 to try to listen to other people's sides and 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 take that in. But in the end, you can't listen to everyone. You have got to back yourself. You know, you can you can overload yourself with advice from every direction and confuse yourself. In the end, you've got to. Pick a pick a line and stick at it, you know. Stay the line and and back yourself on that. And you, it's not always right, but if you don't back yourself on it, um, you never get anywhere. You know, that's that's I suppose that's it. Yeah. From the outside looking in, I've always been quite amazed at how for how busy you and Jane are and how much you have going on. How much of a priority 
family time is and time with your children. Talk to me about that because I can imagine it would be quite easy to get lost in the daily grind, the, the rat wheel or hamster wheel. Um, you know, there's so many things, you know, calling for your attention, uh, especially things that have dollar signs attached to them. But really switching off and spending time with family is something you guys do very regularly and very consistently. Mm. Yeah, it's – I suppose one of the, the real beauties of growing up in a farming – uh, station life is that you have the potential to have a lot of time with your kids. Um, it's really easy to ignore that and not spend the time with your kids if you're too busy. And, and we don't, we don't lead a traditional farming life where I chuck one of the kids in the ute and go out to the tractor and drive the tractor for the day. We, we're across multiple locations. It's really easy to just think, oh, it's too hard to throw the kids in or, you know, I'll do it when I get home or whatever. But you've got to keep coming back to they're not going to be with us for long. And let's make the time. And that no, it doesn't necessarily have to be even work time. It just be it might be holiday time. Like I would never, ever, ever take a holiday in the middle of the year. I just couldn't contemplate it with mustering time. You know, when before the kids came along, and now they're away at school. I just it's not negotiable for me now. If we need to go away and have two weeks of school holidays in the middle of the year, so we can see our kids when we've got time, we just do it. And if that doesn't work in the business, then I don't want to be in the business. So it changes, it does dramatically change that for you. Um, cause they, you know, it's getting quite scary for us now. Like Gus is 14 till he's 12. It's only a few years and he's out and about and he's gone, you know, and it's just a blink of an eye. So you got to, you got to weigh up what's more important to you, Steph, you know, and, 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 and manage that. And, and, you know, I've seen people do it. I've seen people that might get through their whole lives very successful, but lose their family. And I've always, so, gee, I don't want to end up like that. You know, how important is success and money and that as against your family? There's, there's got to be a trade-off there. If you need to make a trade-off, there has to be. And looking back on your story so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson that you've learned? Look, for, never be told you can't do something because there'll be a lot of people that tell you that, especially in agriculture. They'll tell you that you need this or you need that or you need a family farm or you can't do that or that's too hard. It's it's an awesome industry that's got so many opportunities in there that you just got to put that negativity aside and say, I can do anything. It's just how I, it's just how I approach it. It's just how I think about it, how I approach it, and then take a wide view. So, you know, don't listen to people that say you can't do things. You can do things. Um, there'll also be some pretty big bumps in the road. Uh, you have to be ready for cyclical and market market downturns, all sorts of things that happen in ag. So try and not overextend yourself too much because it will un- un- unravel you like I found out <laughs> nearly a couple of times. But at the same time, you've got to push the boundary stuff. You know, you don't ever get there unless you push those boundaries. So finding a medium in there is, is the key. And, and, and I suppose the last one would be you just, you, and most importantly, have a, have a good family and make sure that you respect that and give them the time that they need to, which I can't say I've always done. No one's perfect at that, but I always have in my mind that I need to.